You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, even more cryptids! This episode was edited by Marissa McCool, who you can find on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'll be your host today. With me, I have Jem Newman. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Lauren Bailey. Hello. And that is way harder to do, looking at the Audacity screen and not your faces or names. <laughs> I think I'd have them down by now, but no. <laughs> you think so. So we have spoken before on this show about cryptids, shockingly enough, since we started as a skeptical podcast. I don't know if that's exactly what you would call us these days, but that's the what we were. The intersection of science and society. Right? Cryptids falls under there. <laughs> cryptids is also the name of our trivia team, which is awesome. And I can't wait for trivia to be safe enough to start again. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to say I can't wait for it to start again, because, eh, I guess bars are all vaxxed now. Yeah, but I can wait for that. <laughs> At the same time, I don't know, I feel like it's everybody else in there has to be vaxxed, too. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that our team is, it's that everybody entering that place is. So that feels good. Yeah, I'd be fine with it. Anyway, what are some of the episodes we've talked about cryptids before, Jim? Well, in addition to individual episodes that have touched on individual cryptids before, on episode 108, which was a whopping five years ago, we talked about cryptozoology and mythical creatures. And we talked about a whole bunch of them. On that episode, Ashlyn, you talked about the Loch Ness Monster and flying rods. Lauren covered Bigfoots and cryptobotany. And... Laura talked about the Maltese tiger and the North American jackalope. And when I brought this up earlier, <laughs> Ashlyn did not remember this happening at all. I did not. I had no <laughs> recollection of this. I even asked Jim, what are flying rods? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they are. And as soon as he said this, I remembered the artifacts that appear on film when you are like seeing bugs at night, actually. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar now that you say it. So listeners can check out. We'll provide a link in the show notes to episode 108. You can find it at lueepodcast.com. It has fallen off the bottom of our RSS feed, so I don't think it's on iTunes anymore, but if you work real hard, you can find it on the internet. (laughs) Work real hard. But what are we talking about today, Ashlyn? Getting started today, I wanted to talk about the reason I decided to do cryptids again. I get the Wikipedia email of the day. We've also done an episode on Wikipedia. Any idea what the number of that one is off the top of your head, Jim? Oh boy, I don't remember. It's like 150 something, I think. It was a good time though. We talk about hummus. (laughs) (laughs) And buffaloes. (laughs) So I get the Wikipedia email of the day. And one of the entries a few weeks ago was the Flatwood Monster, which I had never heard about before. And I thought it was cool to do like a lesser known cryptid. Although now that I have researched this, I realize that maybe I'm like the last person to find out about this cryptid. So we'll see. (laughs) Episode 138. Was our Wikipedia? Awesome. It was. So it's still there on iTunes. That was a quality episode. Yeah. The story of the Flatwoods monster, who goes by many names, started in September of 1952, a time when anxieties and tensions were high and aliens and nuclear war were on the minds of many. Even Life magazine, the most widely circulated magazine in the U.S. at the time, had recently done a credulous story about flying saucers. It was like a trend story, apparently. (laughs) Trend, UFOs. So before I get started, actually, have any of you heard of the Flatwoods monster? No. Okay, no. I'm on the right track then. <laughs> At this point, I'm going to say no. Right, but right. As I can tell from Jem's face that when you tell the story, I probably may have heard of it. So I'm going to hedge my bet on that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have since looked it up and it does ring a bell. Okay. That's a cool thing for a cryptid to do. <laughs> Sorry. That was awful. Oh, God. 
So on September 12th of that year, three boys, Edward and Freddie, who were brothers, and their younger friend Tommy, were playing outside at dusk. They saw a bright light move across the sky and land on a nearby hilltop, on the Fisher Farm. On their way to check it out, they stopped at the home of Edward and Freddie, which was on the way, and told their mother, Mrs. May, who accompanied them with the family dog. Also along for the expedition, I wasn't clear if he was at the May's house or how he joined the party, but a very young local National Guardsman named Eugene Lemon joined them, and at least two other neighborhood children kind of joined the gang on the way over to the hilltop to see what had fallen from the sky. Very disappointed because I was sure you were going to say Eugene Levy. <laughs> that would have been amazing, right? Very young Eugene Levy. <laughs> yeah, sadly, this did happen in the U.S. This is in West Virginia, I should have said. Home of many interesting cryptids. But not Eugene Levy. <laughs> no. <laughs> Please tell me that Freddy's real name is Fredward. So we have Fredward and Edward. <laughs> As far as I am aware, that is not the case. Also, if their mother actually named them Edward and Fredward, that's so bad. Very Chronicles of Narnia. So anyway, they hiked over to this farm. When they reached the farm, at least one of the boys saw a pulsing red light at the top of the hill where they had seen the light come to ground. They ventured closer and the mist grew thick and they smelled sulfur and they felt out of breath. It was like super spooky. They felt nausea and vomiting later. So Gene Lemon pointed his flashlight into the mist, which is when the group spotted the monster. It was taller than a man. That's the thing they agreed on. Taller than a man. Anywhere from 7 to 28 feet tall. <laughs> That's quite a range, <laughs> <That's>... right? <laughs> wow. Yeah. The figure had glowing eyes, a round red head, with a tall pointed hood like the Ace of Spades behind it. And its body was either green or black, possibly draped fabric, or maybe adorned with pipe-like structures. It had short arms with claws for hands. Jean screamed, dropped the flashlight as the creature hissed, and seemingly glided toward them, noiselessly, after the hiss, apparently. There was both hissing and noiselessness reported, so just telling you how I figured out how to put that together. (laughs) (laughs) After the initial group had run off and told other townspeople, several folks searched themselves for signs, at least one person bringing a truck to drive the area for any clues to what might have been seen. The smell was reportedly either gone or lingering when more people came. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was 1952. The sources are not super accurate. Nobody had a smell vision. Basically, local newspaper microfiche. Searchers subsequent days went back to find tracks in the forest and substances that they thought, oh, might have come from a vehicle. And the farmer said, well, I haven't driven anything here in weeks. And so everybody was like, it's a UFO. But they brought a a truck. tracks yeah and they specifically had reported in the paper at the time so it must have been known that some guy brought a truck to look around the area to see if he could find anything right it was tracks from the truck that's what happened (laughs) (laughs) anyway but that was apparently taken as a very convincing point that where could these tracks have come from if nothing else had driven here So only two other possible sightings of this monster exist that I could find. And I feel like they're both a real stretch to say that this was the same monster. (laughs) But I'll let you be the judge. This is like very charitable telling of how similar these things are. One was the same night as the famous sighting shortly before and about five miles away in a small town. A woman was walking through the woods as a shortcut and she saw a light streaking through the sky just as the boys had. And shortly after that spotted a tall, dark, man-shaped figure that she ran away from. So she decided after hearing the boy's story that this must be the same creature. So that's in the record. The other one was, I think, a few days later, a couple that was driving about 20 miles away from this initial incident reported that their car died mysteriously and a reptilian creature similar to what the monster might have looked like without its spade-shaped head appeared and dragged (laughs) a claw across the front of their vehicle and they smelled sulfur... And then the reptilian guy left and the car started working again. So those are the two other sightings. (laughs) The amount of time that this thing has been visible to human eyes is like less than a minute total, according to all the reports. (laughs) Like nobody says that they have seen this since 1952. However, despite that, this creature has had an incredible outsized effect on the local culture and economy. This town 
that it was called Flatwoods, right? That's why it's called the Flatwoods Monster, is like 300 people. It was 300 people at the time. And one of the articles said it was a few less now. (laughs) (laughs) So not a lot of humans in this place, but they have a visitor center. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And that visitor center is 95% Flatwoods Monster Museum. <laughs> so a quote from an article that I read, I thought was very funny. Many locals never did believe the story, but the locals did the most earthling of things. They made bumper stickers, shot glasses, and giant monster-shaped chairs that whole families could get into and have their picture taken while sitting in the monster's scary, embracing arms. They created the Monster Museum. They put up signs on highways, home of the green monster. (laughs) So they don't believe in the monster necessarily in this town. Except for the witnesses who, like, they've talked to, like, 100,000 newspapers at this point, and now they refuse to do any more interviews, who have basically stuck by it and been like, I saw what I saw, kind of thing. And they're old men now, as far as I can tell, still alive. One of the locals, though, a man by the name of Gibson, says, I don't believe in the Easter Bunny. He remembers the incident from his younger days. I don't believe in Santa. And I really don't believe in the Flatwoods monster. But I do want to boost our economy. So far, he has sold 1,000 of his one-foot-tall green monster statues for 30 bucks a piece. (laughs) Wow. Nice. So, doing pretty good. Like I say, they do technically have a Flatwoods Visitor Center, but it is it started out as one shelf dedicated to the monster, and then everybody who was coming was just wanting more monster stuff, so they made it mostly monster stuff and a little bit of... They have, like, a hunk from the tree that he supposedly came out from behind. Like, that has to be the most exciting thing at that museum. It's the only actual artifact. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Turns out the true monster was capitalism all along. 100%. (laughs) So, there's also a local musician by the name of Colby, who his band has set a folk song about the incident to new music, and he even has a tattoo of the monster on his forearm. It was apparently written at the time of the incident, and then he just put it to new music, so it's very folk song from West Virginia. (laughs) Nice. And he has a different theory about what happened. So most people think that the monster was evil or coming here to eat people, whatever aliens did at the time. But he thinks that the Flatwoods monster was just looking around, being a tourist, seeing what he could see. And a group of kids and their mom and a dog approached them and scared him and shined a light in his eyes. And he says, quote, next thing he knows, he's getting blinded and freaks out and starts vibrating and basically throws up some weird oil on them. So I think they startled him. That's my theory. I think they startled the Flatwoods monster. (laughs) I just thought that was adorable. (laughs) So I just did a quick search. Okay. Like most of North America, the great horned owl is prevalent in West Virginia. And Mm -hmm. a lot of these alien sightings have been, people now believe that it was great horned owls because they make weird noises, they're very smelly, and surprisingly, it can go from 7 to 28 feet just by flying. (laughs) And they can also... (laughs) 7 to 28 feet. (laughs) They can also sit on tree stumps or branches and wrap their little claws around them, which, Mm -hmm. with the tree stump underneath them, it might appear to be one continuous creature with two little hands high near the head, which is, of course, in fact, the owl. Yeah. And I'm trying to, I can't remember the name of the incident, but there was like a farmhouse where people swore there was aliens like running around on the roof. And then it turned out to be owls. Are you thinking of Signs? That Mel Gibson movie, Signs? No, there's an actual incident that one was cribbed from. And it turned out to be owls. I still think you might be thinking of Signs. (laughs) I thought thought they were thinking about Men in Black. (laughs) No. This was an actual incident that people reported and all. But it was just owls hopping around on the roof? It was just owls. (laughs) So my vote for this one is owls. (laughs) Well, my literal next sentence was going to be, so what really happened that night? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to jump the gun. (laughs) (laughs) But that was funny, actually. I was going to ask if anybody had any theories. Does anybody else have any additional theories somehow? I think the owl hypothesis is reasonable but i think no theory is more compelling let me clarify no explanation the explanation that we don't know what happened the lack of explanation is more compelling than the flatwoods monster explanation to Mm. me Mm -hmm. yeah i agree even though i do think it's owls 
never know. <laughs> so lots of people have investigated this incident, despite, again, less than one minute of total visual contact with this thing. Well, there's not much else to do in West Virginia. The Air Force even did an investigation into it as part of their Blue Book Project, which is also right. apparently a TV show now, which oh, no. covers this what? incident as well. Didn't have time to watch it today. We did talk about Blue Book on the show before, though, as well. On our, one of our UFO episodes. Lots of other bad TV shows have also done <laughs> covered this story and have taken pictures in the Flatwoods Museum. They're all up on their website under celebrities that have visited our museum, but they're all like B-budget TV shows. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry also did an investigation led by Joe Nickel. I found his work very good in the past. And these are some of his thoughts. The night of September 12, 1952, the streaks going across the sky are extremely explicable by a meteor that was seen across three states that night. It was huge and bright and extremely noticeable and happens right around the time that these incidents are said to have happened. Like it's a slam dunk of a, this is the light that they saw crashing across the sky. The three flashing red aircraft beacons were also visible from the hilltop where the boys saw the incident, which could account for descriptions of a pulsating red light and the red face of the monster. So he's supposed to have been like red faced. Nickel concluded that the shape, movement, and sounds reported by witnesses were also consistent with the silhouette, flight pattern, and call of a startled barn owl perched on a tree limb. <laughs> Vindication! <laughs> Almost. Or is horned owl a different word for barn owl? I don't even know. No, it it's be. also on this page. It's the second most horned owl and then barn owl are the two most common owls in West Virginia. Yeah. He also concluded that foliage beneath the owl may have created the illusion of lower portions of the creature, described as being a pleated green skirt. Or again, as I said in one description, pipes. Like, it was trees, people. It was trees! Oh <laughs> you were in the forest and you were looking at trees. There are wild animals in the woods. <laughs> right <laughs> and even like when you think about the shape of the hood like even the shape of this head as it is drawn and depicted in all of these statues and posters like it looks like an owl it looks like an owl's little face with his big eyes <laughs> <laughs> oh baby and yes he also talked about the reports of it having small claw-like hands extended in front of it it's talons gripping a t tree branch like, it's all so explicable as these kids saw an owl and they were scared. And even the symptoms that they experienced, uh, they said, like, they felt nauseous and they vomited. Like, you just, like, freaked yourself out a lot and also ran up a hill. Yeah. That probably has something to do with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is the Flatwoods Monster, an owl which created an entire town's economy. <laughs> because hard capitalism. <laughs> Good for you, little owl. Get that you know, paper. You gotta make a living. <laughs> I admire the hustle, I guess. Right? <laughs> I don't think the owl probably benefited much. <laughs> <laughs> no. The owl would probably be better off if that little town fell off the map. <laughs> well, back into the wilderness. I gotta ask, though, is Flatwood anywhere near the Monongahela Forest? Yeah, it's gotta be. It's not that big a state, isn't it? Yeah. For those who don't know, listening to the guys from Mbimbam, they do a RPG podcast, and their second sh game that they played was cryptid hunting in West Virginia. There was a visitor nice. center called the Cryptonomica. <laughs> but they get a lot of listeners. Their listeners should come here and listen. <laughs> but Lauren, you also researched a cryptid for us today. Surprisingly, yes. As we were planning this episode, I had the original idea of presenting about lake monster myths in general, and Loch Ness in specific, asking the question, why are there so many discrete yet similar lake monster stories worldwide? However, as we mentioned earlier, Jim remembered that Ashlyn had done a Nessie segment in episode 108. I do suggest you check it out after this one, as we talked about before. I pissed off like two Bigfoot hunters with my segment. They left us messages and everything. <laughs> Not wanting to retread those murky waters, I opened up the Wikipedia list of cryptids page and sorted by type. There was only one entry listed as dinosaur, and that intrigued me. <laughs> True, it is. Yeah. And it Plesiosaurs me. are not dinosaurs. And like no. the only one listed as a dinosaur. I'm mm -hmm. doing that one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I started reading into the complicated history of the myth of Mokele Mabembe. And like nearly every other segment on L-U-E-E, -E, 
Once you scratch the surface of this dinosaur in Congo legend, you find colonialism, racism, and greed. It's a hell of a combination. As for my original question re-lake monsters, my hypothesis is, deep water is scary, people exaggerate to both impress and warn other people of danger. Also, big fish exist. (laughs) Anyway, off to the Congo River Basin. (laughs) Big fish exist. Thank you. (laughs) Big fish and owls exist. (laughs) Things to keep in mind when you're going cryptozoology hunting. (laughs) I thought that in selecting the Mokeli Mombembe to study, that I would be looking at one of those local cryptids with isolated sightings, like the Jersey Devil, or the Loveland Frog, or the Flatwoods Monster. <laughs> but I was very wrong. The Mokeli Mobembe myth links the racist horror of Cecil Rhodes to the anti-Semitic horror of David Icke, with young Earth creationists and colonial opportunists willing to do the heavy lifting in between. It's basically the exploitive spirit of colonialism concentrated into one cryptid. (laughs) But I suppose I should back up and explain what the Mokeli Mbembe is before we get into the weeds. Short answer, the Mokeli Mbembe is a sauropod dinosaur that lives in the Congo River and its deep tributaries. It's an herbivore that hibernates in holes it digs in the riverbank. Yes. A giant monster that hibernates in the riverbank. <laughs> its name purportedly comes from the Lingala language and translates to one who stops the flow of rivers. So a beaver? <laughs> <laughs> While descriptions vary widely, it's generally described as a sauropod, like an apatosaurus, but roughly the size of an elephant. It has a long neck, a long tail, and it's hairless. Various accounts have it gray or brown or reddish, and most say it has one long tooth or horn on its face, though some have said there are three horns. Humans being human, rumors of giant beasts hidden in the Congo forests and swamps date back to the 16th century, when European colonization of Central Africa ramped up. Late 18th century missionaries reported seeing giant clawed footprints about 90 centimeters across. But most stories of a living dinosaur in the Congo basin date to after the discovery of dinosaur fossils, so the 19th century. Colonial opportunists and big game hunters fueled the myth. Some mounted expeditions to hunt this living dinosaur, with the racist ideas that its discovery could only be authenticated if a white guy did it, and that local oral legends were not worth the paper they hadn't been printed on. Also complicit was some of the fiction of the time, monopolizing on the dinosaur craze. Conan Doyle's book The Lost World, about a hidden part of Africa that was still home to dinosaurs, among other tales, helped popularize the myth. One of Cecil Rhodes' occupation commanders, Frederick Silus, was, unsurprisingly, a big-game hunter, also helped to continue the myths of hidden pockets of lost or fantastical beasts, including the Michele Mobembe. In the early 20th century, German animal collectors Karl Hagenbreck and Hans Schomburg continued to perpetuate the idea of a sauropod in what is now Zimbabwe. Hagenbeck was a respected merchant who supplied animals and humans to several European zoos. In his 1909 book, Beasts and Men, he solidified the description of the Mokele Mobembe as some sort of brontosaurus, and he also led at least one unsuccessful search for it. Listeners will probably remember that the brontosaurus is not a real dinosaur, but the mistaken mishmash of skeletons put together during the paleontology race in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I have to point out, Lauren, if you don't mind, that the brontosaurus has been revived and removed several times taxonomically, and I believe its current status is active. (laughs) (laughs) What? (sighs) I tried to look it up. Oh, well. I can can double check. (laughs) But I think a couple years ago, they brought it back. The one that was purported to be the brontosaurus for all those years was not real. They put a different dinosaur's head on on a patasaurus's body. Although the... Type species B. excelsus had long been considered a species of the closely related Apatosaurus. Researchers proposed in 2015 that Brontosaurus is a genus separate from Apatosaurus and that it contains three species B. excelsus, B. yanapin, and B. parvus. Yes, so the Brontosaurus has been revived. <laughs> not revived! I mean, that would be cool too, but we're not talking Jurassic Park scenario, just in terms of the classification. Taxonomy is a joke anyway. <laughs> Correct. Cladistics <laughs> is the only true science. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Ooh. Anyway, Schomburg said that while he was exploring Lake Banguello in Zambia, that he noted the lack of hippos and his native companions told him a tale of a lake-dwelling monster that killed the hippos. Schomburg chalked it up to evidence of the Mokele Mbembe. Attempts to prove the continued existence of the Mokele Mbembe included that of Willie Ley, a German-American cryptozoologist and science writer, don't know how he puts those two together, who published his crypto book, The Lungfish, the Dodo, and the Unicorn, in 1948. 
<laughs> Lay popularized the report from German captain Ludwig Freyer von Stein Zaluznitz, who described local legends as credible, but he was certain they wouldn't be believed by European audiences. Lay ran with the von Stein report and added his own twist. He described a mythical Babylonian dragon called the Sarush, an image of which is found on the Istargate, which had been removed from its homeland and rebuilt in Lay's town of Berlin. Removed in quotation marks there. <laughs> the Istargate has over 120 depictions of animals, including lions, dragons, and aurochs. Since the aurochs, now extinct, was a real animal, one that had lived far from where the gate was constructed, Lay theorized that all the other animals depicted had been real at one point or another, in lands visited by the Babylonians. He concluded that the Surush, the Brontosaurus, and the Mokele Mobembe were the same animal, writing, and I quote, The Surush could have lived in Central Africa, where it had been proved that the Babylonians went, and where they could have seen a giant lizard. Like most of the pseudoscientific reasoning of the time, Lay didn't bother to cite a source for this belief, but thanks to popular myths about the ruins of Greater Zimbabwe being the mythical city of Ophir, Western audiences were already inclined to believe that Babylonian people conquered a great swath of Africa. There is a lot of colonialism history in Africa that is tied to the myth of the Mukeli Mbembe, and I didn't have time to get into it, but it's fascinating. Interesting. By 1959, Lay still claimed the connection between the Mokele Mbembe and the Surush, but he didn't pose it that the gate was the proof. He kind of took that out of his writing. Mm. I went down a bunch of these rabbit holes that connected the Mokele Mbembe to other countries in Africa, and they all had the link of something racist, something something. All of Africa is the same. Racism, racism. (laughs) (laughs) I just imagine, like, one of those old English explorers in the pith helmet opening his mouth and then charlie brown style all that you hear is racism 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 <laughs> racism it's true though right expeditions to find the mokele mbembe not surprisingly slowed down during both of the 20th century world wars and it also ground to a temporary halt when african nations began to struggle out from underneath imperial regimes in the 1980s bernard huvelmans and roy mackle founded the international society of cryptozoology the ISC had several expeditions to Congo to search for the Mokele Mbembe, based on Ley and Hagenbach's various works. Mackle fixed upon a local legend that, in 1959, people hunted and killed a Mokele Mbembe at Lake Tele, and everyone who ate its meat either got very sick or died shortly after. That's convenient. Yeah, I was going to say, there was no even survivors to tell them about it. Mackle and his expeditions got so very close to Lake Tele, but had to turn back because either their visas were about to expire, or they couldn't find the path, etc. <laughs> Locals around Lake Tele apparently hadn't heard the tale that Mokele Mbembe meat killed or sickened people. They hadn't heard of the dinosaur at all. They were entirely wrong part of the continent. <laughs> oh my god. Well, they were operating under the belief that all of Africa was the same. Right. Luckily, that was the last time that would happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Other explorers claimed to have seen the beast, but couldn't get the lens cap off in time, or had not yet developed the pictures when they hosted their press conferences. The pictures eventually showed nothing. Of course. ISC member William Gibbons was so certain that the Mokele Mbembe had to exist. He was a young Earth creationist, and his worldview had been shaped by the 1925 movie version of Conan Doyle's The Lost World. Gibbons believed that there was a link between the young Earth theory and the living dinosaur theory, and made several trips to prove it, sponsored by young Earth groups and stubborn missionaries. They found (laughs) no credible evidence anywhere that they searched of the existence of any sort of living dinosaur but these expeditions continue to this day. Gibbons had even received sponsorship from the Discovery Channel and celebrities like Mick Jagger and Ringo Starr to fund these trips. The Discovery Channel, when he couldn't produce the goods, yanked the footage and has not aired the special. As with all legends and myths and unfulfilled religious dreams, the Mokele Mbembe story continued to get ugly. In the 1990s, followers of David Icke proposed that the Moleke Mbembe was a link in the chain that led to the lizard people. For those blissfully unaware, the lizard people myth is the foundless belief that a group of underground lizard people from Alpha Draconis star system secretly controls all of Earth's governments and corporations. And weather. And minerals. The myth is a thin sheet of WTF tossed on the standard anti-Semitic myth that Jewish people secretly run the world, and I'm not going to get further into it here. Gibbons and his acolytes continued to make exploration-slash-missionary trips to Central African nations to promote young Earth creationism and to search for cryptids. The latest monster they're looking for, giant spiders. They just can't quite catch on film, though all of these trips have the central idea that the Mokele Mbembe might be in the next secluded river. 
one of these trips in 2009 had Gibbon standing on the banks of the Congo River, poking at small riverbank holes with a stick. He insists that these are the breathing holes for hibernating Mokeli Mbembe, saying, quote, Once they're sealed in there, it's very difficult to get them out. It's just a pity we didn't have any other way of finding out what's on the other side of this mud wall. He then shrugged and walked away. <laughs> Science! Oh, no. <laughs> it's so, like, oh, my God. I'm just... There is so much technology that could answer very definitively, is there a giant dinosaur alive under this mud? And You've searched your whole like, life for well, it. Yeah. Can't know. Not going to dig. <laughs> yeah. The only equipment that Gibbons and his team brought for digging out these dinosaurs? He had spent his life attempting to substantiate them, remember. So the only equipment they brought was a stick and a small shovel. <laughs> Suggestions that he bring back other equipment to find out what was behind that mud wall fell flat. Here's my life work. Probably behind this wall. Not going to show it to you, though. Yeah. I'm sorry, folks. This segment is a roller coaster. And I want to end by highlighting some of the information on sauropod physiology provided by <laughs> Daniel Luxton and Donald R. Prothrow in their excellent book, Abominable Science. They argue that, since humans have had the ability to take better quality photos and videos and fly over large areas of the Congo Basin, we have found less evidence for the existence of the Mokeli Mubembe than we had before. If there were really groups of sauropods currently living or recently extinct in Africa, we would have found some sort of evidence by now, be it bones or a living example. Also, Luxton and Prothrow point out that, as our knowledge of the physiology of sauropod dinosaurs grows, the purported physiology of the Mokeli Babembe has not grown. While we are now fairly certain that prehistoric sauropods walked fairly quickly, get their legs straight and their tails up, and live primarily on land, the Mokeli Mbembe still resembles the 1897 image of the Brontosaurus. Swamp dwellers who lived on aquatic plants and dragged their tails along the ground. It's difficult to update the scholarship about a fictional beast, one that was, if not created, then popularized to propagate the dangerous and ugly myths that Africa is a dangerous continent that can only be tamed and ruled by colonial forces from elsewhere in the world. It's time for all of these dinosaur myths to go extinct. All of them. Any myths about living dinosaurs? Probably not true. Yeah, they can mm -hmm. all go extinct. What about birds? <sighs> I assume they were just talking about non-avian dinosaurs. <laughs> I know. Uh, I believe we even did a segment about how we can stop saying non-avian dinosaurs now. Never. Yeah. I wasn't going to get into that. Yeah, maybe it was the opposite argument. Whoever knows. Thanks, Lauren. That was excellent. That was really I have great. a lot of sources on this that I'll have in the show notes, so I really suggest giving it a look. And if you can find a copy of Abominable Science by Luxton and Prothrow, I really recommend giving it a read available on scribe day it is So, Jim, what are we talking about next month? I know that's not normally where this piece goes, but... <laughs> so next month, we are going to talk about con artists, confidence tricksters, scammers, and hoaxers galore. I'm very excited. So now we are going to smoothly segue into a... The segues are always smoother when you call them out. We're going to smoothly <laughs> segue into discussion of Rick Dyer moving from big game hunters to big foot hunters. We're womp going womp. to give a preview of next month's episode about hoaxers. So we've talked about Bigfoot on the show before, as I mentioned up at the top. So I don't see any great need to rehash the various arguments. Suffice it to say, it's extremely unlikely that a population of large non-human primates could exist in the present-day Pacific Northwest that is both A, sufficiently large to be stable, and B, sufficiently small to avoid detection. On the other hand... It is extremely likely, that is to say the probability is 100%, that Bigfoot sightings and finds have been faked, consistently, for decades. <laughs> Shocker. So, today, I would like to talk about one of the more prolific con men in the game, Rick Dyer, Bigfoot Hunter. Yes, I'm not going to let that pun on Big Game Hunter go, despite the fact that obviously it does not work. So, Rick Dyer is an American used car salesman. No, I'm not making that up. All the best ones are, Jim. <laughs> who has gained fame for, I guess, murdering Bigfoot? <laughs> Oof. In August 2008, Dyer announced that he and his buddy Matt Witten were in possession of a dead Bigfoot. In a closed press conference, Dyer presented reporters with what he claimed was the body of a Bigfoot encased in a block of ice. Accompanied by low-quality video footage, 
Dyer claimed that he and Witten had stumbled across the 500-pound hairy corpse on a hike in the mountains of Georgia two months earlier. According to Dyer, they had called in four friends and spent a day and a half carrying the body back to their truck, with Dyer claiming that they were followed the whole way by at least three other Bigfoots. Or, as of course I should say, Big feet. Fellow foot enthusiast Tom Biscardi was also present at the conference and effusively attested to the corpse's authenticity. I will quote Biscardi. Last weekend, I touched it. I measured its feet. I felt its intestines. Not everyone was convinced, though. Jerry Perino, for example, who runs an online Halloween store in New York, when reached for comment by Fox News, he said, Yeah, it definitely looks like our costume. Oh my god. As the body thawed, it became clear that the corpse was, in fact, a large Halloween costume stuffed with roadkill opossum and slaughterhouse leavings. Oh, I thought it was going to be a dead human, but that is much worse somehow. I I would argue that a dead human would probably be worse, but. I don't know. (laughs) At least it's all. They do call it the skunk ape. Like, oh. So, when challenged on the fact that he had attempted to pass off a rubber suit as a cryptid, a rubber suit stuffed with offal as a cryptid, Dyer stated, oh, anyone want to guess what his excuse was? Uh-oh, SpaghettiO? <laughs> <laughs> no. His excuse was, he had a real body, but it was confiscated by the government. <laughs> and having already gone public, he was in too deep and needed to show the public something. Oh. So... Listeners who are paying close attention may notice that when I introduced the topic, I said that Rick Dyer was famous for murdering Bigfoot, but here he claimed that he had just found the corpse. That's because this is not the last time that Dyer claimed to have a couple of large, hairy feet at his disposal. All he has is the audacity. In 2014, Rick Dyer, now claiming to be a master tracker, I guess he dropped the used car salesman gig, Dyer said that he was now in possession of yet another Sasquatch. Speaking to James Joyer of Esquire magazine in early 2014, Dyer said that while the body he presented in 2008 was not legitimate, he had turned over a new leaf. I will quote him from the interview here. Yes, I played a hoax, and I take full responsibility for it. Though it didn't start off that way. But yes, I did the hoax, and ever since then, I've been a Bigfoot tracker. I'm not employed anywhere except tracking Bigfoot. I have investors that let me do that. And on September 6th of 2012, I fully redeemed myself by shooting and killing a Sasquatch outside of San Antonio, Texas. Oh, no. Ah, yes. The old, I redeemed redeemed myself by murdering Bigfoot routine. Oh, no. (laughs) When asked to elaborate on this, (laughs) Dyer said, quote, We went and bought some ribs at the Walmart. We nailed them up all around the trees. And then that night, we heard Bigfoot come back. I chased him down in the middle of the night. I shot him once. He ran. I shot him again. Then I shot him a third time. It took three rounds to drop him. I looked over my shoulder, and the BBC cameraman was being attacked by another one. So I ran up to him and made sure he was okay. His face was all tore up, bloody and stuff. To make a long story short, that's yes, definitely wait. We, we don't want details, Rick. Just, yeah, just make that long story short. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> to make a long story short, we basically dragged it to the end of the woods, waited till the following night, rented a freezer truck. We contacted the U.S. government. They sent a person down from a university and they verified it wasn't human. They said, congratulations. My investors got they a hold of another not. university. <laughs> and that's where it's been. It's being autopsied. The pharmaceutical rights have been sold. It's a big deal. (laughs) The autopsy is hosted on Fox by Jonathan Frakes. The the pharmaceutical rights. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case, like, Bigfoot bile is a big discovery? What happened to the cameraman? Yeah. (laughs) I presume he was saved by the heroic efforts of this guy. Rick Dyer, yeah. When asked by critics how he intended to substantiate any of these claims, <laughs> especially in light of his history of being a con man, Dyer replied, DNA, DNA sequencing, scans, autopsy, anything you can imagine, it was being done. But in the meantime, Dyer spent much of 2014 touring the body, which he'd sealed in a coffin with a plexiglass lid around the United States. Dyer charged visitors $10, only $5 for kids, to view the Bigfoot, which he'd named Hank. <laughs> Rick Dyer was so good at karate, he karate chopped Bigfoot to death. As his claims continued to draw skepticism, 
Dyer responded increasingly aggressively, slandering his critics. After a professor of anthropology at Idaho State University compared this whole Hank fiasco to the famous fake alien autopsy footage, several members of Dyer's team abandoned the project. <laughs> Soon afterward, Chris Russell, a Washington prop maker, admitted that he had constructed Hank out of foam latex and camel hair. Aww. Dyer had apparently told Russell this was for a film he was making, and instructed Russell to make it look a couple of years old, presumably to match Dyer's story of having killed the thing back in 2012. Quote, I was asked to make this prop and make it look like a poorly made, old and rotten taxidermy prop that had not been preserved correctly. Dyer did send photos and drawings taken from the internet and asked for certain features to be replicated. When questioned again by reporters, Dyer maintained, once more, that he did in fact kill Bigfoot. And he does have the body, but he refused to show it to anybody. Back in this Esquire interview, they ended the interview by asking Dyer why he feels his claims face such relentless skepticism. And Dyer replied, because they're jealous, man. The Bigfoot community is a cutthroat business, brother. Every one of them is a hoaxer. I've had my Corvette vandalized. I've had people trying to stalk me. It's been a real mess. They're trying to discredit this. They're trying to do anything they can to make me look bad so they can continue making money. Because there's so much more money if Bigfoot is not found. <laughs> he just started talking about his Corvette being vandalized, though. <laughs> and I just ask for the general public not to believe everything you read about me. <laughs> Oh but boy. why? It seems so accurate. <laughs> so that is Rick Dyer, Bigfoot Hunter. We will hear more about hoaxers galore on next month's episode of Life, the Universe, and everything else. I'm excited. I love them. Yeah, they're pretty good. All right. So... I wasn't totally clear on what my topic was going to be until earlier this afternoon. So I'm going to talk about former cryptids and oh. also how cryptozoology and the search for cryptids might actually be a good thing and not a waste of resources. Today we talked about a couple of well-known or maybe lesser-known cryptids, I guess, would be a more accurate way of talking about it. I'm curious if any of you are familiar with the concept of former cryptids. So this would be like things that people once thought was a cryptid and then turned out to be real, like is the Okapi a version of that? Right, that's exactly an excellent example. It is creatures that were thought to not exist and then were verified to in fact exist. And I think that's really cool to talk about because we often spend a lot of time talking about things like Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster and things like that, that they just don't exist, guys. They just don't. Okay, can we we can stop with that now. So I do think the idea that some of these things that were maybe myth or legend did in fact exist. A couple of examples of these types of creatures are, like Ashlyn said, the Okapi. So for anybody who isn't familiar with that, it's actually a cousin to the giraffe. It's the giraffe's only known cousin, I believe. And it's much smaller. It doesn't have the distinctive long neck, but it does have very distinctive markings. Its legs have zebra-like stripes on them, black and white. And it's very reclusive. And that's part of what made it really hard to find find in a lot of And it's of just like incredibly adorable. They are super cute. They're super sweet looking. They're very lovely. They're about the size of a horse. And you can definitely see some of the resemblance in the head shape to a giraffe's head there, even if the rest of the body doesn't really look like it. Fun fact, the finding of the Okapi kicked off a whole new realm of the Mokeli Mbembe search. Because like, if this one's real... This other one is probably real, too. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to talk a little bit more about some of these other ones. Another excellent example of a former cryptid is the platypus. Mm. <laughs> Which I knew they were adorable, but oh my God, they're adorable. And pictures of baby platypus, like, oh. Platopodes. Apparently platypi is also fine. Nonsense. Shut They're up. my favorite animal, and I have, I think, ten different stuffed platypi. They're so cute. Not like actual stuff, but stuffed no. animals. What do you think about it? Like, the platypus is far less plausible as an animal than most of the cryptids <laughs> out there. <laughs> it legitimately is. If ever there was something that seemed like a made-up chimera, it is that. And that's 
what people thought it was. Creation leftovers. Yeah. Monotremes are freaking weird. <laughs> yeah, there's a few other examples as well, some that I'll talk about briefly. What I really want to talk about with these is that there's a similarity between the things that we categorize as former cryptids and the things that are still cryptids, other than them being actual creatures. And then, of course, there are some other similarities. Like a lot of these former cryptids tend to live in very small areas, so they don't have a large range. They tend to live solitary lives or in very small groups. So again, you're not likely to see a herd of them going around. They often live in dense forest type places. They might be nocturnal. Again, all of these things compounded on each other make it really difficult to find one if you're going out to find one, especially if you're not entirely sure what you're looking for, which when a lot of biological and zoological discovery was happening in the late 19th century and stuff was common because there weren't photos and there wasn't internet and all of that. Mm -hmm. You're going off of hearsay and that's maybe translated and lost meaning and so on and so forth. So those are some commonalities that you will see among a lot of these former cryptids. There's something else, though, that is pretty clear when you start looking at the lists. Anybody have any guesses of where I'm going with this? I smell a colonialism. <laughs> that is partially true. Well, I was going to say, like, maybe they're more secretive animals or they live in places that still have a lot of natural resources. These are both true, but that isn't it. It doesn't have anything to do with the animals themselves. Jem is very close to what I'm getting at here. These are creatures that are in fact well known by the people who live near them. It's just mm. white people hadn't figured it out yet. Yep. White people <laughs> didn't believe that they existed. Let's take the example of the platypus. In the 1800s, when white people discovered the platypus, they thought it was a hoax. They legitimately thought that someone had taken an otter and a duck and sewn the tune together and sent it to England as a hoax. They didn't think that it was real. And the scientist who was looking at it actually took scissors to try to find the stitches and cut the bill off of the platypus carcass. It was dead. And then realized after some time that, no, this actually isn't just sewed on. Just imagine him saying, look, guys, we've got circuses back where we come from, too. We know the deal, okay? <laughs> right, exactly. Now, where the platypus comes from and how it got to England has a lot to do with why the English didn't believe that it could be a real thing. Because you see, Australia is pretty close to China. And at that time in China, it was believed that, oh, there's a lot of tricksters in that in China. So there's also a racism going on here. No joke. This is part of the reason why the English didn't believe that the platypus could be real because of racist beliefs about what people in other countries in Asia would do. So that's fun. That's great. Over time, the platypus was studied and the European scientists were debating things like, do they lay eggs? Do they produce venom? Whereas the Aboriginal peoples of Australia had known that and could prove it for thousands of years prior to the English still debating this. Where I'm getting at with this is that these creatures, the Okapi as well, another one is the Dingizo from Papua New Guinea. These are reclusive creatures. Well, the platypus, not so much, but the other ones are. But they were well known by the people who lived there. And in many cases, the people, the scientists, the explorers who entered these creatures into the scientific written record were helped by local people who knew where to find them or who knew enough about them to say, you can probably find them this way. You need to look for this. You need to look for that. Mm -hmm. The Dingizo, for example, is a... Has anybody heard of this one? No. So it is a type of tree kangaroo, which I did not know oh. was a type of creature until today, but they're adorable. Tree kangaroo? Yeah! They're very cute. And they have a distinctive black fur with a white belly and white markings. So they stand out from a lot of the other reddish-brown tree kangaroos. And this creature has <laughs> been... other tree yeah, there are different types of tree kangaroos. Yeah. Wow. They're really cute. Oh my god, everybody needs to Google image this immediately. Yeah, seriously. Marsupials are some of the cutest things ever. And they're built. Oh my god. Muscly <laughs> little dudes. <laughs> Side note. 
tree kangaroo's bones are much denser than land kangaroo bones because tree kangaroo bones need to sustain falls of 20 feet from branches. So maybe they should just learn how to keep their balance. Ever think of that? (laughs) Wow. Jem hates cats and tree kangaroos. The adorable clumsiness is part of their charm. The dingizo is a tougher tree kangaroo to find. It's much less common than some of the other types, as I had mentioned. But it has been a part of the Moni people of Papua New Guinea's legends for centuries, at least. It's a very spiritual creature. It's that creature that is seen as caring and sort of a spirit animal if you will. So it's been part of that, but it's never been something that wasn't real to them. So many cultures have had all sorts of mythical creatures. And as we learn more, and as all cultures learn more, we kind of change those definitions there. This was not one of those types of things, though. This was something from the environment that was meaningful to the people and their practices and their daily lives. Now, the Okapi here, I'll just give that example since it ties into Lauren's story really well. The Okapi is, again, a little bit harder to find. Samples of the skin, especially the distinctive zebra-like pattern, had been sent to scientists and universities from Africa to England, I believe, for some time. But again, the scientists there passed it off as a hoax or saying, oh no, it's zebra or it's something else. It can't possibly be its own thing. It was actually only when Sir Harry Johnston, who was the British governor of Uganda, when he got involved with it in 1901, that people started to take it seriously, that this was its own creature and that it was not, in fact, some sort of chimera. So yay, colonialism again. Just a total inability to believe in anything that wasn't they hadn't seen with their own eyes. Exactly. So it had to be when a famous well-off white person said, oh no, this is for real a thing, then people started listening. Right. Typical. Very, very typical. I guess I don't really have a conclusion to this portion of what I'm talking about. I just wanted to bring it up that the idea of what a cryptid even is, is going to depend on who's looking at it and whose stories it comes from. And I think that's something we miss in some of the discussion. These former cryptids, they were only cryptids to people who didn't grow up with them. They were never cryptids to the people who actually live where these animals live, never. There are cryptids in many cultures that have always been cryptids to those cultures, but we have to be careful when we're going cross-cultural because that's when we start putting our own lens and our own bias and our colonialism on top of all of these things and start assuming that if it's not a white-tailed deer, it can't possibly exist. Wait, are you saying that white-tailed deer are the only actual existing animals and the rest of us are cryptids? (laughs) I don't know. It was a bad example. (laughs) No, I want to explore this. How long have you had these feelings, Laura? Well, I'll tell you my feelings about cryptids and talking about cryptids in general. I don't care. I hate this topic. (laughs) Full disclosure, I was dismayed when we were going to talk about it again, because I do not care. (laughs) But I came across an article that made me think, maybe, maybe there's something with this cryptid study. Maybe there's some good that can come from it. And considering that I have long felt that the search for these cryptids is a waste of time, money, energy, media attention, so on and so forth. I've always felt it futile to even bother talking about these kinds of things. But I really liked the perspective in this article, originally published in The Conversation by the authors Bill Adams and Shane McCorristine. Their premise is that the search for cryptids isn't necessarily as wasteful as it needs to be, or as it seems like it is. And it can actually have some benefits in the real world, especially for conservation. I like this perspective because they point out, and rightly so, that we don't know all of the creatures that live on this planet. There are thousands yet to be discovered, including many large mammals. And this is where the typical cryptid hunt jumps straight to Bigfoot or something like that and goes that way. But we have some pretty good examples of some of these large mammals that really have been hard to find or categorize as separate species until recently. One such example would be Vu Quang Ox. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that. 
It's a type of wild ox found in forests on the Vietnam and Laos border. So it was first described in 1993. And it's not that it wasn't known to locals. It was just really found that it was actually its own species. And that was really interesting. So oxes, while it's not a huge animal, it's certainly not small. We're not talking about a mouse or a beetle or something like that. That's much easier to miss if you will. Mm, We are still finding these types of creatures. And there are certain pockets of the world that just for a variety of reasons have been harder to explore or haven't been or whatever it is. So there certainly is potential there. And that's really promising as we try to search for knowledge and understand our world more so. So the search for cryptids is it gives us some hope of finding some things that are really, really out there and really cool and really important parts of different ecosystems. And I really like that part of it. One actually really interesting example that is pointed out is that one of the explorers and actually the founder of the World Wildlife Fund, if you're familiar with that, he was big into searching for Loch Ness Monster. His name was Peter Scott. I'm not sure if either of you are familiar for this. Oh, he really wanted to find the Loch Ness Monster. And so as he actually proposed a name for her. So originally the name was after Queen Elizabeth. So he proposed the name Elizabethia Nessier in her honor. But Queen Elizabeth declined that honor because it was likely to be a hoax. (laughs) So then uh, later on, he renamed her Nesiteras Rhomboterix instead. But what he did was really interesting because while he was searching for Nessie, and part of the reason that he gave Nessie this type of name is that he preemptively applied for protection under the Conservation of Wild Creatures and Wild Plants Act in 1975. So to quote from this article, Although he knew that grainy photographs were insufficient taxonomic evidence in the long term, Scott argued the procedures seemed justified by the urgency of comprehensive conservation. For Scott, conservation was at the heart of the hunt for Nessie. I thought that was really, really interesting. That's a perspective that we never hear. He thought that, hey, if there is in fact this creature and maybe there's only one of them, we want to do everything we can to try to protect it, right? Yeah, it's a nice thought. I like that thought. I think it's really positive. What if all of our conservation dollars start going into Loch Ness instead of Amazonian rainforest? Yeah. Sure. And I do see that. I liked the perspective that it wasn't about hunting it. It wasn't about mounting it on a plaque somewhere Mm -hmm. to prove it. It wasn't even about it being a monster. And this is part of the argument from this that I think it's really good. If we can move past that idea of cryptids being monsters, which for a long time they were because of mythology, and and that makes sense in the evolution of people and, and culture and stories. But if we can move past that, that they're not monsters, they're not out to get us, it's not us versus them. If they do exist, they're just there, just like mice are there and rabbits are there and all sorts of different creatures live on this planet. Then we can look at even more reasons to conserve what we have here. It's not about conserving just Nessie, but it's about conserving the whole ecosystem, right? Because if you try to conserve one creature and you conserve their ecosystem, there's probably other creatures that are going to benefit as well. We tend to prevent other bad things from happening. So I think that's really good. And that's where they argue that it can come together. So we do need to move past this idea of just focusing on these really big ideas of cryptids, shall we say, but realizing and looking for the fact that while we go looking for some of these other things, if we do, if we keep our minds open, we're probably going to find some other cool stuff. And if we keep the idea of conservation going, that this whole area, all of this needs to be protected then there's probably going to be a bit of a benefit. That was really well put. Thanks, Laura. I do want to reiterate, dinosaurs are extinct. (laughs) (laughs) And big fish exist. (laughs) And so do owls. Owls. (laughs) Yep. Only the non-avian dinosaurs are extinct. Jim! Well, I mean, the dodo is also extinct. That's also a dinosaur. Stop! (laughs) Oh my god. You know what's not extinct? Why don't we move on to something nice? Yeah, what's everybody got that's been not awful in their life this month? That's <laughs> for you, Laura. something nice to not awful. 
I'm trying to help you out. You always struggle. Uh, clear that low bar. <laughs> so low. I didn't think ahead of time. <laughs> Lauren, what's your something nice? Ashlyn and I went a couple of weeks ago and we upgraded our phones. And it's been a long time since I've upgraded my phone. I went from the iPhone 7 to the iPhone 13. <laughs> and it's nice to have a phone with battery power where I can play my Merge Dragons game and listen to a podcast at the same time and I don't have to keep it plugged in. <laughs> so nice. I know all the bad things about, yeah, not going to get into that, but I have a new phone and it's lovely. Nice. It was also kind of a miracle trip to the store. We showed up and they were like, oh, those are really hard to find. You might have to give you a weird color. And then he came out of the back with a black one and a blue one. And we were like, yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Jim, what's your something nice? I think I'll have to go with the second season of Ted Lasso. Mm. Laura and I just finished watching it. And I felt like there was some real top-notch character work. Yeah. There were a couple episodes that were a little uneven, but I really liked what they did with pretty much all of the characters. And it continued to be funny and heartwarming and to have something to say. And I liked that. Mm -hmm. I really love Roy Kent. <laughs> How about you, Ashlyn? What's your something nice? The Wheel of Time show finally has a release date and like a trailer and I'm starting to believe that it might happen. I know that's dangerous <laughs> with anything in this fandom, <laughs> but I'm starting to think that we might actually get to watch some Wheel of Time on the screen on November 19th. What, your spirits weren't buoyed by that fake prologue trailer that they paid to put on TV at oh uh, 1230 in the morning? <laughs> so many years ago, I, I downloaded it from pirate yep. bay or something just to watch it because i wasn't staying up for it and it was just like five minutes of Ileana, Helena. Yeah. <laughs> billy zane's finest work it was the worst God. no those were terrible but i think this is finally happening so i decided i was finally going to reread the books i haven't reread them since the last one came out and i didn't do a full reread then and i was worried that it was just going to be like a horrible slog because like i've grown up from robert jordan <laughs> yeah they have a very soft place in my heart because it was like my first fandom and my first internet friends came from it and everything but i was very worried about rereading it and i still am kind of but like as soon as i got into the story of two rivers it just like took off and i've been very happily reading and i am excited for the show to come out she's been sitting That's here nice. tugging on her braid all day just reading her books <laughs> <laughs> yeah he had no idea how to write women very no. unfortunate i'm having a watch party at my place <laughs> exciting well maybe we'll have to join you in november yes. <laughs> so what's your something nice laura my something nice is spending some time making a halloween costume for myself this weekend Yay. i have gone out for Halloween without a costume for the last three years, which is fine because I'm just taking my kids trick-or-treating and we're not cool going to Halloween parties or anything like that. But I love dressing up and I have been spending a lot more time on my children's Halloween costumes the last couple of years than on my own, but I'm pretty crafty and I can make some pretty good costume stuff. And so mine is coming along quite smoothly and I'm very happy to finally be having a costume for myself again and the kids costumes are coming along as well so that's really nice it's really exciting and this should be coming out on November 1st if all goes well what is your costume that you theoretically wore last night Laura uh I'm gonna be a jellyfish <gasps> that's so cool awesome yeah I've are never... you doing the umbrella one no no I've got a hat set up going on here nice. but it does have lights in it and will have glow sticks sweet i still remember the paper bag princess one that you did that was a great costume it looked so much like the illustrations yeah i, I was just going to mention that it's my favorite yeah i couldn't sit in that though <laughs> <laughs> i could only lean <laughs> but yeah i did it and i was zelda a couple years ago i think three, about three years ago i think that was the last costume i made for myself so from breath of the wild because nice. Kira was a different for Zelda. So yeah, anyway, it's really nice to get back into it. And I crafting is fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All nice. right, well, thanks, everybody. I would feel remiss if I didn't, since we are still at the tail end of something nice, if I didn't shout out the Insulindian Phasmid, a cryptid that haunts Disco Elysium, one of my previous somethings nice. <laughs> uh, so 
it's yeah there's some really cool quests related to cryptids in disco elysium oh and i totally forgot to mention during my segment i was gonna bring it up but i didn't make a note about it so of course i forgot apparently the flatwoods monster has gotten super big in japan it was the final boss in some early NES games. And <laughs> like you can find figurines and stuff like people know about it over there. And because of this, there was a nice story on the Flatwoods site about how a Japanese woman showed up at the museum one day saying that because of the Flatwoods monster, she had researched West Virginia and like taken the trip of a lifetime to come and see this tiny town. And <laughs> it was quite cute. Oh, wow. <laughs> Aww. I think it's also featured in Fallout 76, which yes. I believe is set in West Virginia. Although the less said about that game, the better, probably. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us this month again, everybody. As we mentioned before, next month we are going to do con men and conference tricksters. Can't wait. Really fun. Good night, Sounds everybody. Good night. Good night. Life, the universe, and everything else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool, who you can find on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF.